Hello, here we are doing a recorded sermon again this week, and uh, it's great that you're with us. We'd love to have a personal connection with you, so if you wouldn't mind going to our website and submitting your name and email, and we'd love to connect with you personally. We also invite you to attend, if, you're, if you can, our Sunday morning services at 10 a.m. here at the corner of Broadway and Maple. The next two Sundays are going to be two Sundays regarding faith and doubt, and Thomas will be our main example. Today we're looking at Thomas and going from faith to doubt and back to faith. When we doubt the truth or the veracity of the Christian faith, it usually comes under two categories that can cross over. We have our intellectual doubt, you know, intellectual reasons why we don't believe, or heart doubt. We have emotional reasons why we struggle with believing in God or, or God's goodness. Many times we think with our emotions. We're human, we're not a computer. We have feelings, and they do determine what we believe and do not believe many times. And the idea of horrible things happening to the human race is probably the number one reason people have doubts about a good God. Suffering and evil do not prove there is no God. They just bring problems to the kind of God that we have. If he's sovereign over the world, why is there so much misery? I've given many sermons on the suffering and evil uh, issue. I don't plan to dive deep into this issue on these two sermons. You could go back into our sermon archives and listen to my series on Job where we tackled this head on for quite a while. The Bible says that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Not just when I'm happy, sad, or perplexed about it. Truth doesn't change according to my ability to stomach it emotionally. This is a difficulty with doubts. It might appear that I am sometimes for doubt and also against doubt. Before we get into the main passage regarding the disciple of, of, of Jesus who was named Thomas, I want to move into an interesting passage from 1 Corinthians chapter 13, known to most of, to many of us as the love chapter. Here's kind of a, a little brief synopsis of it. It doesn't matter how brilliant you are, how powerful you are, how much you've sacrificed. If you don't have love, you are a complete failure and useless. That's what Paul says. He goes on to describe what love really looks like in real life. Love, love never fails in any situation. But one day, everything will disappear, but love will remain. It is the most important attribute for anyone to possess. And ultimately, the Bible describes God as love. Love is God, and God is love. And then near the end of 1 Corinthians 13, we arrive at these two verses, 11 and 12. Here's what it says. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child and I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put childish ways behind me. But now we see but a poor reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. So we need to recognize our limitations when we look at faith and doubt. The big idea here is that there are two worlds Paul is getting at, two experiences, two lives, the now life and the then life, now and then. So the now life is we are like a child looking in a mirror. The then life, we're grown up <laughs> and we will see face to face the now and the then. The now is we have part knowledge. We cannot fully know, but then we will have full knowledge. So let's dig into this a little bit before we move into Thomas. When I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. 
When I became a man, I put childish ways behind me. This is a figure of speech. The human arrival at maturity is a common metaphor in Paul's world. He is not insulting the people here by calling them childish or saying the gifts that he described are childish and that their use is immature. No, they're, they're meant for a certain time and they have their important place. But then we move into adulthood. When we move into adulthood, we do leave many things behind that are childish. Just make a list in your own life. And as you raise your kids, they need to be coming out of childish things. When we move into the new creation, the then life, there will be many things left behind. We are being transformed into his likeness with ever increasing glory. And when we arrive in the new creation, the then life, we will be fully human as God intended. Many of the things left behind are good and natural, but unnecessary in the new world, in the then, T-H-E-N, not Z. The knowledge of a child compared to a grown-up is vast. This is the point Paul is making. We are in the childhood stage until Jesus returns to bring in the kingdom. The time we are in now is a mere passing. It's incomplete. It's partial revelation and knowledge, like the time of childhood. But in the next stage, it's going to be different. There will be full knowledge. Our best understanding is kindergarten now in that sense. And so we need humility and love as we work with each other with partial knowledge. This does not mean that what has been revealed and what we can know is up for debate. <laughs> One day we will fully understand then. Now is like a child. Then is adulthood, maturity. S second section here. Now you and I see but a poor reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. On that great day, the mirror will fall and we will be face to face with the risen Savior. See, mirrors were polished brass and not coated glass like we have today. The image isn't sharp and clear, but there is an image nonetheless, and you can make out the truth of the image. We will one day have direct, complete, and clear knowledge of God and from that clear knowledge of, of the questions we have. It's a personal experience as well in that day. Third part, Paul says, I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. So we need to recognize our limitations. We have a limited IQ. <laughs> God doesn't. It does not mean we cannot know truth, that we are left to our own musings and opinions upon all things theological and spiritual. There are cults and false teachers out there. Doesn't mean we accept them and say, wow, that's your mirror. <laughs> There are certain beliefs that we do not compromise on, and Paul is telling us to certainly know these things, but do not be so puffed up that you believe that everything you have in your little brain is absolutely correct. The early church had doctrines and a confession of faith. Later on, there was the Apostles' Creed and other creeds were established to counter false teachings of the day. So this is not, you know, verses to support, believe whatever you want. What does it mean for God to fully know you? and me. We are known by God. He has called us, saved us, and will bring us into our, His kingdom. He fully knows us, our actions, our attitudes, our thoughts, our motives, our plans, our hopes, our fears, the good, the bad, and the ugly. He knows your lawn bowling ability. <laughs> he knows your chemistry grade from grade 11. He knows how fast you can pick raspberries. Like He knows everything. So Paul looked at his personal life of suffering, of trials, and aches and pains of all sorts. 
And he said, this is now, it's difficult. But he says, I'm not going to lose heart. I will focus on the unseen, the then. 1 John 3.20, God is greater than our hearts. He knows everything. God's knowledge is complete. And on that great day, my knowledge of him will be complete. That's what Paul's getting at. Doubt, if you and I have doubt, and we do, it's evidence that we live by faith and not by sight. We're only looking at a mirror in this life. We live by faith and not by sight. People who have no faith usually do not doubt. <laughs> and people who have faith have doubt. They work together. Since we cannot fully know in this life, there always is some room for some doubt. To struggle with one's faith is often the surest sign we actually have one. And Christ's call is to go deeper into him through our doubt. And Thomas is our example. So here we go to chapter 20, 20 of John, verses 24 to 29. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came to them. So the other disciples told Thomas, we have seen the Lord. But Thomas said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side where he was pierced, I will not believe. I have serious doubts. A week later, his disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them this time. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to Jesus, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus told Thomas, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. That's you and I, folks. Jesus is quick to understand our doubt and the difficulty of faith. Blessed are those who believe and do not see. Thomas saw Jesus face to face. It wasn't through a mirror. <laughs> and he struggled <laughs> seeing him face to face. So it's okay if I don't see him face to face and struggle. Thomas struggled with authority here. That's the issue. Who do we listen to? He didn't want to just listen to the other disciples. He wanted to see Jesus face to face. So how do we deal with this authority for us today? We have talk shows. There's one called The View. <laughs> they have five different women giving their thoughts and their opinions. Another way to call this kind of team committee is, this is the way I see it. This is what's right in my own eyes. This is not how we determine truth, by just getting five people and putting their issues, their thoughts together. Here's a, a question. What is it like to raise triplets? <laughs> Who's an authority on that? The kids? <laughs> the grandparents, the doctor, the parents, <laughs> those who went through it, parenting triplets. What's it like to go through a flood? Someone who's read about it? You know, I read about the 48 flood that happened here in the Fraser Valley. Doesn't make, make me expert on it. I didn't experience it. People who lived in the flood experienced it. So here we have Thomas. We're coming to the end of this gospel. The story has taken its time, working through various towns and villages and major cities. We have met some very interesting characters. We watched various interactions with Jesus. Some have misunderstood him. Some have been downright hostile and wanted him killed, while others have simply believed in who he is and what he said about God and life and death. We heard many amazing statements in John. 
that no mere man could make. He said, I am your gate, I am your door, I am your shepherd, I am your light, I am your bread and your water for life. Without me, you can't live. I am your resurrection. I'm the one true vine who gives life to the branch. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. I'm the only access to God, and if you do not believe in me, you will die in your sins. Now, John is ending his biography of Jesus, and he gives us this story of a person named Thomas. The main focus of prayer for our Lord Jesus at the end of his life, for us, for his disciples, was oneness and protection. A spiritual and motivational oneness and protection from the evil one, as the devil would be like a lion prowling around looking to see who he could devour. The disciples heard this prayer. Jesus wanted them to become one like he was one. This is serious. So they became one in three areas that weren't right. They became one in fear, doubt, and bewilderment. They took the protection idea very seriously as well. They locked themselves in a house. They didn't think of the Holy Spirit as their protection. We read in John 11 that they said they were willing to go and die with Jesus. Easy to say in his presence. But they didn't, they didn't live like that. Once life threw them a curveball or a wrench got thrown into their plans, they doubted. How does God operate? This can't be right. Let's go and die with Jesus as he takes on the Romans. That's what they thought. That's what they believed. But then they doubted. But once Jesus is gone and this Messiah idea is not as they had believed, they certainly had oneness, but it was not about conquering anything. It was a oneness of fear and doubt and bewilderment. There was a point where Jesus talked about going away and coming back. And then Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? And this is when Jesus said to Thomas, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. Thomas, you want to get to the Father? You've got to go through me. <laughs> Thomas heard this amazing life truth at that time, but it did not sink in. <laughs> Jesus has nothing to hide. He is not afraid of a little skepticism. He knew that Thomas would become a doubter. But Thomas initially had faith. Remember, he went from faith to doubt, back to faith. Doubting and having questions is okay. Jesus was fine with it with him. But I would also say, be skeptical of your skepticism. Don't idolize doubts or skepticism or champion them as freedom and being a free thinker. Some people think, I don't believe any of this. I'm a free thinker. Jesus would say, no, I have an authority over your life. I have an authority over your life. I've experienced life and death and resurrection. We have our doubts. Thomas said, I need to see the actual nail wounds. I want to examine the wound on his side. This was eight days later after the resurrection. He had only heard about the resurrection. For eight days, who knows what kind of questions he has. But now Jesus appears. Jesus didn't give up on Thomas. Thomas needed a faith founded on fact. He wanted to see for himself, and when he did, he didn't doubt. But became a very, very faithful disciple. I know at times we all can identify with Thomas. We have doubts. We want to know some things for ourselves. A person's word is not always good enough. We need to know for ourselves. But Jesus said, blessed are you who believe in me. Thomas doubted. Peter doubted at times too as we read through. But they had a life-changing encounter with the risen Lord. He did not give up on them. And he does that for us. Blessed are you who believe and don't see. So when we have doubts, 
When we hear about doubting Thomas, let us remember that he was so much more than a doubter, but rather was one who needed to find out for himself. He needed to search for the truth. He needed to believe, not because of other people's words, but because of God himself revealing it to him. This is how it's ended here in verses 30 and 31. I have written these things, so you will believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and by believing, you will have life in his name. That's for us. Nothing has changed over the centuries. Humans still have the same desires and needs and doubts. We have the need for peace. What a beautiful thing Jesus said when he first arrived in the room. Peace be with you. The doors are locked. They feared for their lives. They had trepidation and panic, and he comforts them. You see, human beings have the unique ability of all the animals to imagine. And a, ma and a major part of that is the ability to imagine the future. They were in fear for their future. Thomas needed peace. We are like Thomas. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. We need peace inside. We have pain and anxiety and turmoil to work through. Jesus can do this. Blessed are those who believe and do not see. So what is his peace like that he gives Thomas in his doubt and he gives us? Peace is a gift from God. And it is the result of having the Prince of Peace, which is who Jesus is, having him resident in the control center of our life. It is a peace in our heart and it's not the removal of enemies or suffering or difficulties in our life. See, these disciples thought, let's get rid of the Roman government, we'll have peace. This is what they hoped for with Jesus being the Messiah. His followers were not experiencing peace. They were in turmoil regarding all the circumstances in their life. Jesus had said the Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead, but they had forgotten about it. <laughs> Paul tells us in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 16, Now may the Lord of peace, this Jesus who met Thomas in the room and said, My peace I give you, may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times and in every way. That's pretty inclusive. To give it, he must be able to do it. And to do it, he must be alive. That's the promise. He says at all times in every way, he gives, we receive. Ask for it. See, the disciples had hoped for a different government to bring peace. They wanted no troubles, but they had their property confiscated. And Jesus says, I can give you peace in all of this turmoil. They wanted peace, and their imagination was dashed, literally put to death on the cross. Their dream was more than crushed about having peace. It was crucified. This is how they understood the arrival of the Messiah, but Jesus is changing all that. No, no, I am the peace. Jesus owns peace. He lived peace. It's ours for the taking. In the garden, in turmoil, he made his request to God, and he had peace. He said, your will be done, not mine. That brought him great peace. That will for us too when we say, your will be done, not mine. This is peace. In the case of Jesus, this peace still led him to crucifixion, not the elimination of death. But he had, most importantly, the peace in his heart, knowing his father was pleased and he had certainty of the future. Remember, Thomas said, I will not believe it unless I see and touch. Thomas raises the single most existential question humans can ask. Did Jesus really rise from the dead? Or is it just a devout wish 
or some kind of hallucination that these men and women had. Thomas could have continued his doubting. How do I know it's not made up or someone pretending to be Jesus? What is the most plausible explanation? Thomas's desire is every human's desire. How can I know? How can I believe? Where does authority come from? The desire for Thomas to know if the resurrection is factual is put on paper for us. Thomas is every generation's modern scientific inquirer and honest seeker. This part of the biography of Jesus is given all of us respect, gives us space and time to answer this question. And at the end of it, Thomas said, my Lord and my God. Wow. He's the first person to look at Jesus face to face and says, not, oh my God, but my God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God. Nobody had ever seen God. That's how John starts his gospel. But Jesus made him known and said, if you see me, you see the Father. People address Jesus here the same way you would call him the God of the Old Testament, the same language, my Lord and my God. Jesus said earlier in John 8, when you lift up the Son of Man, then you will realize that I am the one I claim to be. He's not. Jesus is not just a wonderful human being. He is the real God, personalized for Thomas and for us. My Lord and my God. This was personal and experiential for Thomas. Jesus met him personally at his most needy point, his doubt. Jesus will meet you at your most personal point, And if it's doubt, he will meet you there. Thomas's reaction to the risen Christ has a very profound effect. He addresses Jesus as God. And Jesus said, God bless those who have not seen and have still believed. That's for us. It's difficult. I just want to give you a couple things here about the resurrection. Jesus put appearances in after his resurrection. There are evidences for the resurrection. There are whole books about the empty tomb. Here's just a few things to say from the books that I've read. William Lake Craig has written some great books on the evidence for the resurrection for an empty tomb. Jesus appeared to Mary Magdalene. He appeared to the woman returning from the tomb. He appeared to two disciples on the road to Emmaus. He appeared to Peter. He appeared to the disciples. This was all known fact in that time, and people could have checked it out. He appeared again with Thomas and the disciples. He appeared to the disciples again at the Sea of Galilee at the end of the chapter. He, he met people after his resurrection, many of them. He met the disciples at the Ascension. Paul also mentions appearances to James, to himself, and to over 500 people at one time. That's in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 5 to 8. They see this resurrection as historical fact. Number two. The resurrection shows the origin of the Christian movement. If there was no resurrection, why was there a Christian movement? What caused them to go everywhere telling the message of the risen Christ? There were no visible benefits for them. <laughs> There's no prestige from it or wealth or increased social status, material benefits. In fact, the exact opposite happened. And if it was a lie, a conspiracy they're making up, they, they would have quit. And as a reward for their efforts, they were beaten, stoned to death, thrown to the lions, tortured and crucified. Every conceivable method was used to stop them from talking, but they wouldn't stop talking because they knew the resurrection was true. They laid down their lives. 
that to me is an ultimate proof of complete confidence in the truth of their message about Jesus. And the third one is just look at the difference in these people's lives. Look at the difference the Holy Spirit made in their life. It says they changed the world. So, biographies inspire us. A book or a movie, another human being going through the typical and sometimes not so typical human experience and conquering it, it can bring us courage as we see their courage. It brings us perseverance and hope as we see that person's hope. It can renew us and motivate us to make changes, to stay the course, or pick ourselves up. Jesus has that authority. This is the story of Jesus. But it's also the story of the disciples and ultimately a story that we're invited into. There's one God, one human race, one human who is the way to God, and that is Jesus, my Lord and my God. That is for everyone. So bring Jesus with you into your queries and your questions and your doubts. He will show you. You will find him as you search for him with all your heart. Jesus performed many, many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But I've written these things to you, and that's us, so that we may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing we may have life in his name. Go to Jesus. There's life in his name. Bring your doubts to him. Bring your concerns to him. Bring your stuff to him. He can handle it. He will listen to it. And he will show you who he is. Amen.